The era of the High Republic has finally begun. The Jedi offer a promise of peace and justice to the rapidly evolving Republic. As new challenges and threats begin to emerge, how will the Jedi ensure the safety of the galaxy and uphold their code? Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte. Hey, everyone. I'm your other host, Caitlin, and welcome to our very first official discussion all about the High Republic. I'm so excited. This feels like the beginning of a new era because it is the beginning of a new era, but <laughs> it is. <laughs> I don't know. I, I feel like it's, it, I just feel so excited. It, it's so nice to have a blank slate. To discover a whole slew of new characters, and it's been a long time since you and I have talked about a book, like just one on one, not with an author or something. So mm-hmm. it's it's really exciting. I don't know. I'm I have good good vibes. Yeah, it does feel like it's been a while since we actually did. I don't think we did any book reviews in 2020. <laughs> we talked to authors, so we did talk about books and we did read Star Wars books, but we didn't do a, you know classic prologue three parts structure for our book discussions so it's nice to come back and it's nice to be diving into the high republic finally i mean how long ago was it that we first heard about project luminous oh my god project luminous a long time ago the announcement of the high republic was like i think two weeks before lockdown last year too when they officially called it yeah but we heard about project luminous in 2019 2019, oh my god! Right, like, it felt so long I, ago. I think it was it was celebration 2019. Right. It's, oh my god. <laughs> That's another thing that actually makes me really excited about this era. I love the authors that are participating, and I actually think they all have a really cute relationship. And I'm kind of yeah. fascinated by it. Yeah. I they Charles Soule recently on in an interview talked about how they have a Slack channel and a group chat, and they talk every day. And I was like, this Adorable. is great. <laughs> I love this so much. So, Charlotte, for people who maybe aren't following a lot of these authors or maybe weren't a part of Project Luminous, what is the High Republic era? And, like, what's the whole concept behind this? Like, a brief synopsis. Yeah, sure. The High Republic takes place 200 years before The Phantom Menace, and it's this whole super cool publishing initiative that I think is really exciting because it utilizes a bunch of different mediums and kind of takes back Star Wars to where it existed a long time, like especially like in the 90s, where Star Wars was really being explored through books and everything. But this time it's a whole new era in canon with a whole bunch of new characters leading up to, I guess, the eventual downfall of the Republic that we see in the prequels. And it's really exciting because there's a bunch of authors that are working on it. It's a really whole, it's an awesome, diverse crew of people who are working on it across books, comics, uh, young adult novels, and eventually it will tie into, I, I guess, I'm not sure how much this is going to tie into it, but The Acolyte, which is a series on Disney Plus that um, will come out, I don't know, in a couple years, uh, produced by uh, <laughs> Leslie Headland. And something that's really cool about it is that it, Recently, it came out that Charles Soule actually confirmed this on an interview with Star Wars Explained that this whole initiative and all the character arcs and like the ending has all been fully planned out. So we're in for a treat. I feel like we're in for a really great ride of a full story being told across a bunch of different mediums. And it's really exciting to me in that way. And we're in phase one. There's going to be three phases. I'm really excited to talk about it. I guess 
I think it's really exciting because we're in a, like I mentioned before, in a blank slate. This is a bunch of new characters that we haven't met before, with the exception of some members of the Jedi Council. But it's a whole new thing. Yeah, it's a whole new thing. I think I think the whole initiative behind Project Luminous and the High Republic is so cool because it's it was all conceptualized by this group of authors. Really, I guess all the authors for phase one, like who knows really what if like new people will be brought in for phases two and three or even what's coming down the line. But the, all the authors did this uh, like utopian retreat at Skywalker Ranch, <laughs> I guess like in 2018, 2017, who knows, to discuss what this time period was going to look like. And so characters are, you know, in all of these books, like we're going to be talking about characters in Charles Soule's book, The Light of the Jedi, which are going to be present in all these other uh, comics and books uh, spanning from young adults to children to, you know, adult books too. I just think it's such a cool initiative. And you can tell that all all the authors involved are just completely obsessed with it. Like, you know, you can just kind of tell when people are being authentic or genuine or something's just kind of like an interview that they have to do. And of course, they're enthusiastic about their work, but you can really tell that they all just have this like really great relationship with each other and have really enjoyed working on this project. And I think the fact that there's things like concept art for all these characters and stuff like that, and uh, we're looking at the same events concurrently through different perspectives and different books, I think, is a really cool concept. And I think it's like a great <laughs> feat that they were able to get it together. <laughs> you're, so, you're so right that people are so excited about it and it makes me excited about it. And yeah. there's a sense of um, genuineness that kind of like breaks through that m- makes us as consumers feel like what we're getting is a product that people are really excited about. And that feels really nice. Yeah. So the first thing um, out from the High Republic is the book we're going to be talking about today, which is Charles Soule's The Light of the Jedi. Now, the thing about, again, if you're not super familiar with the whole concept behind the High Republic, um, it is a lot of content. And I'm one of those people who finds like the onslaught of a lot of content very overwhelming. And like, is there an order you have to read these things in? And there isn't. Um, the, everyone involved in the High Republic, all the authors and people from Lucasfilm has said that there is not a there's not like a number one on the side of the light of the Jedi, you know, mm-hmm. indicating it is the first book you have to read. Um, nothing is quote unquote required reading. Um, you can really start whether it's the comic or um, there's the young adult novel that's out right now by Justina Ireland. The, the name, test of courage. Test of courage. I was like, thank you. <laughs> Just escaped my head. The test of courage. You can start there. I think the next thing coming out is Claudia Gray's book into the dark, which comes out in February, I believe. So you can really start at any juncture with the High Republic. I will say that Light of the Jedi is a really good starting point. There's a reason they put it as the first thing that came out, one of the first things that came out uh, with A Test of Courage. Uh, Light of the Jedi is a really good starting point. It's a really good introduction to what the Star Wars world looks like right now at the high, in the time of the High Republic. So if you're interested in getting into everything that's going on with this project, The Light of the Jedi is, in fact, a very good place to start. Yeah, I think that what people have said and people who have worked on the project have said that going in release order actually is probably the best way to go in terms of which order to read things in. And that's what I'm trying to try right now. And you didn't mention the comic series, but there's also a comic series that's going concurrently that also includes characters from Light of the Jedi. So it's just like a lot of content. It's a little overwhelming, but 
I think I think I'm going to be following release order. I think you are too, Caitlin. You're right that Light of the Jedi is probably the best starting place. Like if there's I feel like you could probably go anywhere after Light of the Jedi, but it's good to get like this is the most information after about like the thing that happens in the High Republic. You know what I mean? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so that's the High Republic, and we're super excited to be talking about it today. And we're back with our three-part structure. I feel like it actually has been a minute since we've done a book review and a classic three-part structure. (laughs) We're back. We're back. We're back, baby. So in part one, to no one's surprise, we're going to be talking about our first impressions. And in part two, we're going to be talking about deeper themes. And part three, we are going to be going, giving each other some quotes to talk about from the book, Light of the Jedi. So without further ado, let's get started. So who talks first? You talk first? I talk first? Okay. So welcome to part one, where we're going to be talking about our first impression. So let's just start right in the beginning. And obviously, spoiler warning, we're talking about spoilers. Caitlin, what did you think of the book? I I enjoyed Light of the Jedi a lot. Like I said, I think it is a really good introduction to this world. I think I'm just, it was really exciting to be back in a very ornate world. There's a lot of things going on with the, the Republic right now. And I think that it was really great to just kind of see how things are operating right now. I was super interested in the politics of how things were expanding. I mean, the whole crux of this book is uh, the safety of hyperspace, the safety of travel infrastructure, (laughs) which is such like a (laughs) political thing, like transportation. (laughs) Uh, But that's the whole plot of the book, really. And I really enjoyed seeing how, like I said, how things were operating. I found myself way more interested in this book and the plot, honestly, than the characters themselves, which is the exact opposite of how I usually am in books, like in in anything really, but especially in Star Wars. Uh, So being really invested in the plot was was really fun for a change for me personally. Yeah, I think that's a really funny way to put it because I feel the same. And I think it had to do with me just being generally overwhelmed with the amount of characters and names I had to remember. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just the way that it goes when you're introduced to a new world with like 20 new characters <laughs> with a bunch of different Star Warsian names that are just kind of hard to remember. I am with you in that I was really just trying to track what was happening and therefore I was mostly interested in the plot. And the plot is really interesting. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, you're right. I mean, this book has so many characters introduced. And since they are really using it as a launching point for the entire High Republic like phase one project, uh, Charles Soule had to weave in a lot of characters. And it is hard. I mean, there are charts out there of all these characters already. Like it's hard to remember them all. Um, (laughs) And there's not a ton of time spent on characterization for all of them, honestly. But I think that is a big, like that's kind of the point of this book. Like it is to to show you a lot of these moving pieces, what the government is doing, what some of like what's the relationship between the government and the Jedi, who are our bad guys, what's what does the government know about the bad guys, what does the galaxy look like? I think that was the purpose of this book. And to that end, I think it did it really well. And I anticipate that in other installments from other authors we'll get, you know, very like more character driven stories. Yeah, I think that this was a good like point A. 
I also felt like I had to do a lot of unlearning in this very beginning of like, okay, this is what I knew know about the Jedi just from like the prequels and that whole era. And now I have to kind of think about who are the Jedi in this era and kind of like wipe that slate of what I know clean so I can come into it with fresh eyes. For that, it was an interesting challenge, but I will say I had some trouble with the first 100 pages of this book just because it is the great disaster and I felt like we were barreling towards the great disaster at like kind of a molasses pace. <laughs> we were barreling towards it. Barreling. It's like the book thought we were barreling and I did not think we were <laughs> barreling. I, <was> barreling. <laughs> I understand why it's there though. I don't necessarily think that this is like a huge slight. It just was like, oh my God, this is a lot. I'm ready to get going and I was ready to see the villain. Yeah. And once we got past like 100 pages right into that interlude, I was totally sold, could not put the book down. But those first 100 pages, I was like, I don't know if I can do this, you guys. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I thought uh, I thought the first 50 pages, I was super into the whole setup of, you know, two hours to impact, two and a half hours to impact and like seeing these different characters and what their initial response to this incoming threat was and kind of the mystery around it. But when we started getting into like 30 minutes before impact, 25 minutes before impact, 20 minutes before it, I was like, okay, all right. <laughs> I can remember no one's name except for maybe a few people. And uh, what's the impact? And it's like it wasn't – like there was impact, but there wasn't the big impact. Like they ended up – like achieving their goal of saving people. Um, obviously, people were lost, but the impact wasn't as big as they were scared it could be, the disaster. I really enjoyed the process of reading it like after uh, after that 100 pages to the mm-hmm. point where I was there, then very invested in the characters, but beforehand I didn't know if I should have any attachment to these characters because I thought they were basically all going to die and I wasn't sure but that that being said like I think that things that have these sort of countdowns can be super effective in showing the drasticness like the drama of what is happening and at some points I thought it was really effective and some points not and I think that's just the way it is um it didn't necessarily like it, it reminded me a lot of J.J. Abrams's Star Trek movie in the very beginning where there was like all that drama with I think it's um, Chris Hemsworth and everything. Yeah. And yeah, that part is really good. I've always liked that beginning. And I think a disaster happening in the beginning of any story is always going to be super exciting. Um, I just thought that this went on for a long time. Yeah, it did. I think we could have cut out a chunk of it and still been good. Yeah, after that, you're right. It did. It picked up really quickly, and <laughs> it, it you zoomed through it, and kind of following this mystery. And I'm really glad that this book um, was told from so many different perspectives. There wasn't this secrecy around the Nile and what they were doing. Um, we are looking in depth at what, you know, the chancellor is doing during this time, what her ambitions are. We're getting to go into the Jedi Council chambers to see what different Jedi are doing. We're also with the villains, the Nile, seeing what they're doing. I'm really glad that there wasn't this like, and suddenly the Nile appeared and then we know nothing about them for the rest of the book, except for what they're doing to our quote unquote heroes. So I was really glad that the book kind of took us through everyone's perspective. All yeah, our different, same. all our different parties. 
same. I definitely had my favorites, which always happens, obviously. Yeah. But who are your favorites? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's let's talk about it. Okay. So I love the Nile. Like straight up love the Nile. No one's surprised. I love the villains. But I thought that they were way more aggressive and evil and also cool, like way cooler than I expected. Yeah. I thought that they were going to be my impressions when all this was announced. I was like, I don't know if they're going to be Sith. Like, it doesn't make sense with the timeline, but like, it would be cool if they had some ability. I don't know. And I didn't expect them to be pirates. And the thing is, is that immediately my brain like associates pri- pirates with like not that cool, not that evil. I don't know why. I, I don't know. <laughs> and I think that just because like in Resistance, you know, they partner with the pirates and but. I think with the Nile, I was really impressed with the structure, the care that went into the structure of it all, the 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 head of it, the fact that it's basically like a pyramid scheme <laughs> or like a pyramid <laughs> organization. I I don't know. I was like, how is this going to break down? Because eventually it has to break down, right? And I loved the visualizations of everything in terms of like the hall with like no floors and ceilings. I thought that was the yeah, coolest thing really cool. ever. And I don't know. I I really like Markeon Rowe. I think I'm pronouncing that right. I don't know. I I thought that there was a lot of really good writing when it came to the Nile from to help me understand what they were all about. And it felt like a I felt like I was reading a movie. And it's a weird thing to say, but in something so cinematic as Star Wars, it it worked to me. Like when when they were chanting, you know, who is this for? And I, I don't know. It was great. I loved it. Yeah. I I mean I think we're all kind of obsessed with the Nile. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're so cool. I love, like you said, the structure of them, finding out about the structure going from strikes to clouds to storms to the tempest. I just think it's such a uh, cool visualization of how these this group moves, calling and they even say like we we don't just ride the storm, we are the storm. And I just think that's so cool. Yeah, like that you and it just sounds so like I want to be a strike to them be a cloud, to them be a storm. Like how cool that like eventually you gain enough power that you are the incoming storm. I just think it was a really cool visualization of the energy that the Nile have. One thing I really liked about them is that they're not force users. And so to have this like actual threat to the Jedi that aren't force users is not something we see very often. To have a substantial threat to the Jedi is not something we see very often in Star Wars um, from people who are not force users. And so I think it's really great that the Jedi actually have no idea who these people are (laughs) and (laughs) that they have kind of just been existing in these secret spaces. I think that the whole like the idea of the of the republic right now and chancellor so uh i believe is her name and her initiatives to uh, like define hyperspace like i said the whole thing the whole problem here is transportation infrastructure which that's actually the industry i work in is transportation infrastructure (laughs) i think it was just it was very i was like wow i get this (laughs) (laughs) of of, like it's one of those things that you just don't really think about is the maintenance of roads and like how you get where you're going is such an important thing and if you look back through history and like wars and stuff uh disrupting transportation is a huge blow to your enemy um whether it's trains or ships or even just blocking roads <laughs> it's a huge uh, detriment to your opponent it's a really big deal i and it's one of those things too that i think is so interesting with like hyperspace and stuff and even like bringing it into the real world because a lot of the times like the roads you're traveling 
like that road has been there for a very long time. Like even if it's a newly paved or widened road, like that route is probably at least 100 years old, if not more, depending on where you are, In at least in the U.S. It's probably much older in other countries. But like these, these paths that we follow with our new transportation methods of uh, like cars and stuff, they've been around for a while. Like we didn't really pick those. Other people pick them because of how easy it is to travel through them, like the topography of where you're going. And I imagine that hyperspace is <laughs> similar. And so like the way that they travel back and forth between like the inner, um, like the core to the inner mid and outer rim is probably been mostly the same. And of course, we're going to be talking about the Laura Santacus here because, or not the, the Laura Santacus. That's the Santacus. He's not there yet. Like, good God, I was so excited to see them. I was like, this is the best thing ever. And On so the it, boo, too. It's like I know. I know. It was so great. But I just think it was really cool, this idea that they are creating new roads, basically, through hyperspace. And that there is this danger to it, which would have also been true historically of creating new roads where you're not like cartographers. You're drawing the map. And if you have the map, that's a lot of power to know where people are, to know where resources are. There's a huge amount of power just in being able to say, like, you need to go this way to get to where you're going. And I don't think we really think a lot about that because we have things like Google Maps now. <laughs> and that was not always the case. And I thought it was really cool to see that um, even though we're calling this the High Republic, I found myself thinking a lot about like, okay, are we even really in the High Republic yet? Because there are so many initiatives that are being started by the Republic right now that it seems like there's still like rolling the ball forward. Like they're not really there yet or they don't see themselves as there yet. Uh, I just thought it was really interesting and the idea that it's all based on hyperspace and how you can get resources and aid out to the outer rim. The whole idea of, of who gets to call the outer rim the outer rim, like why does that have to be, why is that not the core, right? There's that mm -hmm. whole conversation that's brought into this book too. Um, I just found it really fascinating, the whole the whole infrastructure of it. And I definitely went away from favorite characters conversation, but Markian Rowe is definitely yeah. one of them. The Santeca is another favorite. I, they have so much intrigue. They continue to have so much intrigue. I'm so glad I've been on the Santeca train since The Force Awakens. <laughs> I mean, it, it makes sense that Poe would go to Lor Santeca in The Force Awakens to get a piece of the map. And obviously he would have that because, uh, hello, his families are mapping. It's like, so it's great. amazing. <laughs> so great. Well, they call themselves prospectors, which is such like a Western old timey. Mm -hmm. And there's like that, uh, that tinge of uh, mischievousness, I think, in mm -hmm. prospector or mystery. Like you don't know how many cards they actually have in their hand. And we see that very much with the Santecas in this book. And then my other favorite was also Kevin from <laughs> the the planet where the great – starts with an H. Now I've suddenly lost it. Hestel. Hestel. I loved him. He was just like such like a nerd boy, but he was like a hero. And I really enjoyed his character and uh, what he – he was like, I need – a bunch of droids. <laughs> they were like, that was great. Right. Right. Yeah. Like, they were like, oh, so like, like a hundred, a hundred droids. And he was like, I'm thinking like a hundred thousand. <laughs> and Chancellor was, was like, all right. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, something you've actually talked a lot about, Charlotte, in the past 
four years of doing this, five years specifically with solo is this idea of like resources and how that's like this kind of underlying theme a lot in Star Wars is access to resources um, and like minerals and industry and mining and how that's very much like that doesn't feel very spacey. I think to us, but it is like a big underarching theme throughout a lot of these stories. But in Light of the Jedi, it's really brought to the forefront in these, like the great works that Chancellor So has to do. And also, again, the fact that transportation is the thing that is at risk here. It's not, you know, the cosmic force like we usually like to talk about. It's literally, is the train working? Is it operating? Is it traversable? (laughs) Are people able to get their resources? Are people able to make their livelihood because you shut down the hyperspace lanes? Like yeah. all these things are are put into place. And you're so right that I think that I would say that it's not even an underlying theme, but it's an overarching theme that actually gets kind of ignored in the general conversation about Star Wars often that like each Star Wars movie and television show generally has that underneath it on top of it embedded within and it's nice to see it continued in light of the jedi um another thing i wanted to respond to was i think that you're so right in saying that the uh the the santecas kind of have like they're playing a lot of different cards and they're keeping those cards really close to their chest especially when it comes to um mari santeca who markion has basically imprisoned uh with the nile and i was this was both tragic and like really cool to me (laughs) i know that sounds awful but it was just a really interesting story facet where for me i was like with when it came to markion i was like okay he's super evil wow he has a cool mask neat and then immediately (laughs) i was like oh he's like so soft he wants to change everything from the his past i was like oh wow i'm getting kylo ren vibes like this is really exciting and then at the end, I was like, oh, wow, he's like so mean. <laughs> and <laughs> and I think that, that that softness obviously came from his relationship with Mari Santeca because in a lot of it, you know, he was torturing her. Yes. But in, in it, he was like, I have to put her out of her misery. Like, maybe I should just put her out of her misery. And then I was like, oh, oh my God. Like, he was like, why are we still doing this? And bearing his soul to this woman, right? This woman who has no idea where she is or what she's doing or anything like that. And then when you talk to the Santecas, obviously they know something about whether, like, how is Mari still alive and everything? They don't know, but they're not willing to disclose that to the Jedi. And you're like, why (laughs) you know and i think it's because they want to have these secret paths and i love the concept of the secret paths because i think it's so fun it's so neat to have like an adventure story where there's like a back road uh, a fun little way to get get someplace that's not you know the regular the regular road to take it's you know exciting so i don't know i I was like a lot of emotional whiplash when i came to (laughs) to markion which is exciting to me and i i want to pose this question because this is what we do here on Sky Talkers. Do you think Markion is redeemable? Okay, well, I had a very different experience with Markion. I don't think I ever saw him as soft, even with <laughs> Mari Fonteca. Because the way it's like he's so he the way I read it is that he just he positively hates that he needs her at all. It's like this, I can give this all up if she just wasn't here. You know, but it's like, how can he when he has all this power and he doesn't have any excuse right now to not still be the eye and his plan isn't complete yet. I don't even think he knows what his plan is. And I love how at the end of the book he was like with um, Loden, Great Storm. He was like, I don't have plans. He's like, I have goals. And there's a difference. 
And I loved how he kind of had that semantic distinction between goals and plans. And Loden was like, all right, fine. Tell me your goal <laughs> as opposed to your plan. <laughs> I I don't know if I think he's redeemable. I think there's obviously something that happened with the Jedi and his family. And it's something that he – it'll be interesting if we ever get flashbacks about Markeon's relationship to his father and if his father had any kind of softness mm-hmm. in him. Because Markeon clearly is out for revenge against his father. And that is tied up with uh, Kasev and also, uh, I guess, potentially other Niles and then other Jedi, too. Uh, So there's something like he wasn't always so evil or he was loved enough to the point where he wanted to seek revenge for his father. So what Mm -hmm. exactly did that look like, I think, will be really cool to see in the future. Is he redeemable, though? I don't know. I think when we started reading the book, I thought that he was very much, like, in his plan. He, like, didn't know what to do about the Nile. He's got this secret about Mari that no one else knows about, that one day she's going to die. The past aren't going to die. He's kind of, like, grasping at straws. Like, one day the past will run out and he won't be able to make new ones. And what does he do when that time comes? I almost thought that we'd get this intersection of him and a Jedi sooner in the book and there would be something happening there of some kind of conversation about what they were doing or something would prick at his soul to save someone they came across. I I don't know. But that did not happen. (laughs) And he just – he kept taking it up a couple notches (laughs) every couple chapters. The whole scene with Kasev when he – when he chopped off his hand, I was like, oh, he's straight up going to kill him right now yeah. in front of all these people. And then, but I think the most evil, the most dastardly was uh, afterwards when he sent Kasev to their death and put on this whole show for Kasev's Tempest to then replay to the other Tempests later to be like, look, I tried to save them. It just didn't happen. <laughs> And, like, they, they're the heroes. And he, like, paints the blood stripes on his face of, like, for Cassif. Oh <laughs> it, it was it was, just, it was so chilling. It was so um, – it was so leaderly. And I loved the other Tempest runners throughout the book. Like, once we got to that point with Markeon, being, like, things have shifted. And uh, <laughs> this is not great. He's <laughs> <laughs> Fully taking, like, he completely by the end of the book has restructured what it means to be the eye. And I think that we could probably have figured that out the moment when they talked about the structure of, like, what the eye is and how the eye doesn't make decisions. Um, And then by the end, obviously, the eye makes decisions. So, yeah, uh, power is escalating. Um, I would say because it's Star Wars, he is redeemable, but I don't know how. And it would it's going to be an interesting journey and I can't wait to see. Yeah. Yeah, I I mean he's he's everyone is everyone is redeemable. The question is will he be redeemed? Yes, exactly. Yeah. I feel like personally because he started so dark in this book, it feels like he's probably going to get even darker and then kind of pull back a little bit and we'll see like what makes him do that and you're right that it probably has to do with his past because hello it's Star Wars it always has to do with his past. <laughs> so, especially with like a relationship with his father. Oh my god, like hello. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll yeah. see how that goes. Another thing I wanted to talk about was Avar Chris. So I think that before starting this book, obviously Avar's on the cover. She's 
cool blonde Jedi, awesome, does everything good and perfect. And everyone thinks she's like the picture perfect Jedi. And the cat's her- meow. Yeah, yeah, everyone thinks she's like super cool and then as an as a reader you're also supposed to think that she's super cool and therefore like have this sort of like hero worship about her but I did kind of raise an eyebrow a couple times where I was like okay so when is this hero going to fall off of her pedestal and in light of the Jedi it was like oh her she's actually being like risen up even further so during the next like two phases I have to imagine that she's going to be kicked off the pedestal and how is it going to happen and I think it's going to happen somehow from inside herself obviously but with the epilogue with Elzar I thought it was really interesting they they have like a you know a personal relationship that is obviously really interesting to Caitlin and I can't wait to see where that goes <laughs> and I thought there was a like, really some really good quotes that I kind of wanted to unpack a little bit here in this part if that's okay because I think that it, it's pretty clear to me that when you have someone who we're supposed to see as perfect like she sees this force as the song and wow it's so beautiful and she's so pure and all these things right that that's not going to continue it can't did people have to be flawed um and at the very end in the epilogue obviously we see some sort of version of how she is flawed in the jedi's eyes whether i think that i don't know but it, it she has a lot of complications right so on page 376 it says the look she gave him was was like that sea he found inside himself, the force, deep and endless and impossible to fully comprehend. You could drown in it. And later he says, he wondered what she thought of her, of the look he was giving her just then, if she might be drowning a bit too. And the, this whole part is preceded by a vision that ends and is it's dark and horrible. And they even use the word inevitability of the future. It makes me think, like, I wanted to know what you thought about this. Like, do you think that this is the downfall of the Jedi as we know it in the prequels with Anakin Skywalker? Or do you think that this is going to happen in the High Republic? And what do we think about, like, the relationship between Elzar and Navar? I don't know. I think it's something that is coming within Elzar's lifetime because in the vision he talks about people that he knew in the vision were here let's read the vision real fast the four sees his mind awful visions flash before his eyes things he couldn't understand cast in a sickly purple light jedi many he knew friends and colleagues horribly mutilated fighting battles they could not win against awful things that lived in the dark things that lived in the deep the jedi those who survived were fleeing not retreating but fleeing the vision spiked into his mind, the force screaming some sort of warning or prophecy at him, shearing through his consciousness, and they would not stop. He saw Jedi dying, screaming, and himself, last of all, unable to escape what was coming. This felt inevitable, certain, evil horror sweeping across the galaxy like the tide. This reminded me, I found myself thinking a lot about, you guessed it, Mortis. <laughs> Anakin's vision that he has at Mortis of his own future. And how even though he forgets it, it is, it's inevitable. Like, we all know it. So I don't think this is, I don't think Elzar's vision is what we'll see in Revenge of the Sith, for example. I think it's something that's coming much sooner. Of course, mm-hmm. we know that, um, well, I say, of course, we know. I can't remember it right now. But the three phases for the High Republic, it's Light of the Jedi. It's It, it just gets Quest progressively darker. Jedi. Yeah. <laughs> and then what's the last one? trials maybe i think it's trials yeah and uh you know that just doesn't sound great great. yeah yeah yeah. it sounds like we're we're falling 
<laughs> what it sounds like. I think there are going to be a lot of choices made. It's interesting thinking that it's Elzar who had this vision. Um, and Elzar is the one who sees the force as the ocean, as the sea, as water. And what I liked in this book is that they spent a lot of time talking about how different Jedi visualize the force, which we don't get a ton of, honestly, from other Jedi. It's always kind of described as this feeling. But in this time when there's so many Jedi who have such an unbelievable connection to the Force, really getting to see how they all visualize and connect and communicate with the Force was really cool. And I think it's fitting that it's Elzar just because his is the ocean, is the sea. And there's so many mysteries within the ocean and like deep waters. And there's a lot of darkness in there too, a lot of cold, right? Like the idea that we don't know what's at the bottom of the ocean really truly. I think that's still true for the Force as well. Where someone like Avar sees it as a song and there's Mm -hmm. something really beautiful about it. But also she, like during the whole thing, like the final standoff, she gets trapped in like the bad song of the Force in the the sad song of the people trapped on uh, cassive ships that are all going to die. And she can't, like, she can't not hear it. So I think, I don't know. I thought that was cool. I think it makes sense that it's Elzar. As far as Elzar and Avar's relationship going forward, right now they're really keeping each other at arm's length, but it's always this. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, will they, won't they? And I'm like, I don't know. Can one of you get with Markeon? Because that would be really interesting. <laughs> like, I'm going to say it. Give, give Markeon a love interest. <laughs> I, I, want that I wouldn't hate it. <laughs> but what they did, they did mention, uh, and we're going to be talking about this in part two, about just like the Jedi as they look right now. But during this whole little epilogue of them walking through this like beautiful garden and stuff, they have this moment where they talk about you know, things they had done as Padawans and how that's just kind of the best kept secret, not kept secret (laughs) among the Jedi Order is that these things happen when you're Padawans and then you have to leave it uh, once you become a Jedi Knight. And it's just kind of part of growing up and everyone kind of knows it but doesn't talk about it. Which I think is funny because I remember that coming up a lot in fan fiction, (laughs) honestly, Mm -hmm. about the Jedi Order and how when you were younger you – basically got away with doing like having relationships with people even sexual relationships and then you know once you got older you had to put all that down so I thought it was cool that they included that I'm it's a very intriguing vision it definitely makes you think that force evil is coming down the line you know it's not just the Nile you have to worry about yeah um I'm gonna I have more to say on this later but Okay, out of Elzar and Avar, who do you think is going to be part of the Lost 20, if not the first of the Lost 20? I don't know. It's like Avar seems too perfect right now that she could just completely fall. And like she has to. I know. But the thing is, like Elzar seeing this vision, this inevitable vision, what if he becomes the inevitability? Like in trying right. to stop it, he becomes the thing that causes it. Right. And those kind of visions, as we know, totally plague Jedi. I also Mm want to say that we haven't necessarily seen a Jedi on Jedi relationship become a problem within the Jedi. It's usually like someone outside of the Jedi. So I would like to see that actually happen in in this story, especially if they have like a history like you mentioned. (laughs) Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think I think it's probably Avar, like out of the two. I think it's Avar. And I think that it would 
think it'd be very good. I think it would be very good <laughs> to, to see that story <laughs> play out. I'm just because she is held to this like such like she literally just sits in the center of the ship meditating and like connecting all the notes of the different Jedi together and feeding them information. I mean, what happens if she becomes this dark side user undercover and is feeding them incorrect information? Oh my gosh. You know, I just, but then it, but then if we're going to talk about the lost 20, then it's like, inevitably they'll probably find out about that. So why did they give her a statue? <laughs> the statue. Caitlin, <laughs> someday we're going to have answers about the statues and why the statues and what the heck. Oh, someday. maybe they'll come in the High Republic. I don't, I don't know. I feel like they're going to. I really I, do. Yeah. They're I so intriguing. And they're, they're, so- they're like bronze gilded and everything in this era is kind of that vibe too. They're literally, I think I'm the only person that harps on it. <laughs> I know. It's true. It's true. You're like, so interesting. Like, we are the only podcast that talks about this. <laughs> we're, we're probably not, but actually, that's not still. true. Last Wayne did a whole episode on the last 20 ones. Yeah, they um, did. And we have not. So. What? <laughs> and we have not. We, you're right. You're right. I can't believe that. But the thing is, we don't know anything else about them. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I've, I've we could someone out there could probably splice together all of my rants on the Lost Twenty, and it would probably be an episode at this point. <laughs> a special, a special a, episode. Keelan rants about the Lost Twenty. Okay, does this mean I can talk about Monument Plaza now? Yes, please do. Okay, great. I'm so excited. We have all this information on Monument Plaza. Charlotte sent me. Apparently, Monument Plaza has already made an appearance in other Star Wars canon, very briefly, <laughs> in like a. Blinking, you miss it, or else you know I would have talked about it before now. <laughs> but uh, apparently, it's shown up in Clone Wars and like in the special editions from Return of the Jedi and the prequels. But uh, you know, I just I didn't see it, so <laughs> I didn't know what it was. But You're now excused. we, you thank you. Now we finally have information about what Monument Plaza actually is. And again, this all just it it feels very real world politics of like talking about public policy the public sector what we're doing we even have chancellor so at the end of it being like don't let kevin off into a private company we need him for the public (laughs) as like a public citizen or like an employee for the public sector and i loved manga plaza it really doesn't have a whole lot of bearing on the story i just wanted to talk about it because i think it's so great the idea that Coruscant was once this, I guess, like ginormous mountain range. And the Monument Plaza, there's the very tip of the tallest mountain range that was on Coruscant that defined the landscape of Coruscant. And now that's that's all that remains really of this original uh, landscape, the original topography of Coruscant. And I loved that they included these details in here. Number one, they talked about um, how there was like a ring around the the peak of the mountain where people had like touched it. And this is one of my favorite things. Like if you go to any like well-known monument, you can see um, like evidence of wear on them, which is both like a concern and both like a testament to the importance of the the monument, the thing that's being preserved, whatever it is. Um, I just think like little details like this. My favorite is at my school, there's this arch um, at like the entrance to my school, the University of Georgia. And um, you there's a superstition at the school that you can't walk under the arch until you've graduated or else you won't graduate on time. It's, you know, one of those college superstitions. But if you go up to the arch now, there are steps around it and you can see where the steps are 
like they're caved in, they're concave of people walking around the arch purposefully. And I think those kinds of things and like the idea of this ring around the the tip of the mountain peak. I don't know. It's it's cool to think about these like pieces of evidence of people caring about this thing um, and pilgriming, uh, like a pilgrimage to it. I don't know. I really liked Monument Plaza. One of the other things I really liked about the description of it was that one, it's been there for forever. Um, obviously, thousands of years of both the history of Coruscant and obviously as just like a mountain range before it was developed, <laughs> but that every different governing authority had all seen fit to preserve the mountain peak and that no matter what kind of good or bad political party was in power, they all had the same idea about the mountain peak and that it was important, which I think is really interesting because you see different um, types of treatments of monuments by different political parties throughout history. One of my favorite things about Egyptian history is that like pharaohs and stuff, they would erect these like great monuments and they would literally like stamp their name on them to be like, I made this. But then whoever the next pharaoh was would inevitably just scratch out their name and put their own. <laughs> and I just... <laughs> I think it's so petty and funny. Um, and then you would have like basically pharaohs like hiding their name <laughs> on these monuments <laughs> so that it couldn't be erased. I think it was Ramesses the Great who like put his name at the very top of like monuments so that it was just really hard to get rid of his name on them. <laughs> <That's funny>. um, <laughs> I don't know if that was like his idea specifically, but <laughs> but that's like the idea like pharaohs in Egypt they they wanted to have all the glory for themselves and only for themselves or something like this mountain peak it's used by everyone and it's i it would be interesting to see how different political parties like used it um for any kind of propaganda or or anything like that or if it always was this place of um sacredness for Coruscant of what came before I think we hear a lot, George and Dave talked about, talk about this a lot in regards to Star Wars of this like balance of nature and technology and industry in Star Wars and this like connection to nature and the force. I think this is something that Dave played a lot with, especially in Rebels, thinking about someone like Ezra who has a connection to animals and stuff like that. And also, of course, like the whole conversation of mining and exploiting places for their resources is a huge thing that comes up. And I think that this on Coruscant is another great example of that, of like they're what, at like level 5,226 <laughs> of, of these buildings, but there's still this like one little piece of green space to return to on Coruscant. And it is like this sacred place for everyone. And it's obviously a very important place to Chancellor So um, and to the people of Coruscant. And I think, I don't know, I just, I think it's important to just like point it out um, that this is still happening. And then I think that juxtaposed like with the Nile themselves of calling themselves like strikes, clouds, storms, tempests. It's very like, obviously it's a weather pattern. It's very naturally occurring. Um, and they're uh, you can't pin them down. They're chaos as much mm -hmm. of nature is often chaos. And I think I think that we'll probably see the force become a little bit more chaotic as we move through the High Republic and the downfall or the on like whatever is, is coming for all of them. Because we see the Jedi in this era all have a very controlled relationship to the force. It's mm -hmm. it's definite, it's 
sure they know what to do but I think that there's like this under like even in that vision from Elzar it's talking about the force shearing through him of screaming of um, like not letting go of him there's something very chaotic there and I think that perhaps more of that will be coming to the surface whether through the influence of the dark side or just maybe through the will of the force itself I don't know yeah, I think that that's a really good point because even at the end, you know, I think that the last line in the book with the epilogue, let me double check this, but I mean, I think it talks about how um, the last line of the book, it says the greatest enemy of, of all, fear. And I think that we can think of the dark side as fear. We can think of fear as the dark side. You know, I think those thing, two things are the same. But when you were talking just now about the balance of like nature and like public spaces and everything. It makes me think about the way the story is going to go because obviously what we see Coruscant as in the prequels, which is now defined in this timeline as the fall of the Jedi. I think we always knew it was the fall of the Jedi, but it's interesting to have it laid out like that, especially in the context of the High Republic. And when we think about the differences between the Coruscant that we know in the prequels versus the Coruscant that we're presented here with, it's it's very different. And I think what you're speaking to is a respect of the balance between nature and public spaces and and the city life. But I don't think that respect exists later during Palpatine's rule. I think that we see a grittier, seedier Coruscant that I can't think of a, a place besides... I mean, obviously, I know that we talked about this Monument Plaza is in the prequels and everything like that. But I think that that's not emphasized when it comes to Coruscant. We see a lot of later, we see a lot of poverty. We see a lot of, you know, actual class levels based on the off the levels of Coruscant. And not to say that that's not present here in the High Republic, it's just not focused on. And then we even see later, like in terms of public spaces, uh, there's not a lot of nature in public spaces on Coruscant. Instead, the Jedi have kind of rationed the nature for themselves in their temple that is not accessible to anyone. Like if you think about the the room of a thousand fountains and even like that room with the tree and stuff <laughs> in, 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 in the Jedi temple, I just think there's a difference there. I don't know. It's it's fascinating to hear you talk about that because I think that what it is being presented is this like glorification of like the the public space being adored and enjoyed by citizens when later, I don't think that's necessarily the case. So I think we're going to see the breakdown of that. And um, like you mentioned, like I do think that it's probably going to be some influence of the dark side, whether it's called the dark side or if it's some manifestation of what we know to be the dark side later. Yeah. Yeah. The thing is, it's like when you see governments like actively maintaining these types of spaces and the fact that we see Chancellor Zoe actually at this space and they make a point to talk about how security has to clear everyone out and all this stuff for uh, for her to be able to even be there. That's like a lot of effort and maintenance and upkeep. And you're right. I don't think I don't think that's really prevalent in what we see later on. And it is like the nature that we see from Coruscant is resigned to the Jedi's spaces. Mm -hmm. Even still, I think I remember in I know it's not canon anymore, but in the Revenge of the Sith novelization, and I'm not sure how much of this is still retained, but like even the sun fractals became not natural. They are harnessed from they're, they're like electronic, everything, the way that the sun sets and everything is electronic. So the difference in two, what what is the difference 200 years can make environmentally? And that I think might come up. I'm not sure. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. A really freaky point. <laughs> no. Another <laughs> another thing that I really loved since we're in our like first impression section, haven't really dived even into our deeper themes section. Um, I loved Ember, the Star Wars dog. Oh my God. Ember. I mean, yes. <laughs> Like, are are we kidding here with like a, a a rescue Star Wars dog that breathes fire? Are 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 you serious? Like that's the coolest thing ever. I didn't realize that he breathed fire initially until he like really breathed fire. Like, <laughs> I don't know if I like skimmed over that sentence or something, but <laughs> they're like he just kept torching torching the man, and I was like, oh, <laughs> okay. I think Ember is technically a girl dog. So uh, sorry, but yeah, good girl. Amazing girl. Love her. <laughs> Thank you for saving everyone. <laughs> Thank you so much. And then how they um, they bring Ember, Belle brings Ember back to the Starlight Beacon at the end. It's just really cute. I know. I want more Ember. More Ember, please. Thank you. More Ember and Belle content, please. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> okay. Should we move on to our deeper themes section? Yes. Okay, so welcome to part two where we're talking about deeper themes. And part of the course, we've been talking about a lot of them already in part one. But one of the things we definitely wanted to talk about was some of what the authors had to say about the entire High Republic era. And specifically here talking about Charles Soule, since he is the author of Light of the Jedi, um, in kind of a promotional launch interview roundtable thing that Lucasfilm did with a bunch of the authors. Um, Soule had said that a lot of the tonal themes and inspirations for the High Republic was based a lot on Camelot-esque time period. And he specifically referred to like the new, not the new Camelot, but like how the United States was referred to as Camelot with President John F. Kennedy and Jackie Kennedy. It's called, historically, people refer to that as Camelot in the United States history, which I thought was a very specific and very interesting look into, again, their tonal inspirations for this time period with the High Republic. So what did you think about that, Charlotte? I think this is something that is so interesting, and it, it's been in my brain since Charles mentioned that. I think that it's we, we should probably say the quote that Jackie said after JFK died. She said, "Let it don't let it be forgot that once there was a spot for one brief shining moment that was known as Camelot. Later, she said, there'll be great presidents again, but there'll never be another Camelot again. It will never be that way again. And I think if we can think about this quote, because Charles specifically referenced it, and we can think about the way that we think about the High Republic, obviously, it's it's all it's a good parallel because we can think about Chancellor So's great works. We can think about things that JFK tried to accomplish before he was assassinated. And then it feel, fills us with like a a, a, a a good amount of dread for like what's coming. We can think about the way that Light of the Jedi puts forth this like perfect High Republic, this perfect time with Chancellor So and the great works and everything and think about how it's all going to come crashing down because obviously that's what that quote from Jackie was referring to. And I think that we can both think about like the real world Americana. I think it's interesting because obviously if Star Wars was based off of like the Vietnam era, what came before that? The JFK era. So it, to me, it like <laughs> timeline wise, it makes sense in terms of like where it comes from influence. Um, 
when you're developing a Star Wars story. I think that's really interesting to me. But I think that we can make real world comparisons to that era and also talk about the actual Arthurian myth and how that can also influence the High Republic era. Yeah, I think, like I said, it was really interesting to hear Charles talk about that. And with you, if you have that in mind when you're reading Light of the Jedi, it feels very obvious. Um, mm-hmm. And specifically, I think the comparison here to Chancellor So, which is someone I'm really interested in, and I hope we get to see more of her in the future because I think she's a very compelling character. And especially because... <laughs> Really, the Chancellor we know the best is Chancellor Palpatine, <laughs> and yeah. he's not super great. Uh, it's it's cool to see a Chancellor who is very active, and at least right now, I would say is a good person or wants good things for the galaxy. She, uh, her, her whole thing throughout this book, and we see all these different characters kind of reference is the quote, we are all the Republic and how she kind of hangs everything on the belief of this statement and the feeling that it can create among people. And it really did remind me of JFK's quote of ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. I believe that was from his inauguration, uh, speech, but I think it's like that same kind of idea and the way that so talks about this uh, catchphrase, this mantra of we are all the Republic, it becomes like you're fighting for this Republic, not for yourself. And that kind of feeling can ignite great camaraderie between people. And I think she even talks about how it will lead to compromise. If people believe that we are all the Republic, then if you have a conflict with your neighboring planet, planet, that's not your opponent, that's your neighbor. And there's a big difference in how you treat opponents and neighbors. What I think was really great about this, though, is that we see her talking about we are all the Republic, repeating it over and over again. And finally, at the end, you see Marquion repeat, we are all the Nile. It's very chilling having that <laughs> comparison between the two of them. And I think it's also a good forebodingness of how these types of phrases can be used. And I was thinking a lot about it of, will will the phrase all the Republic, we are all the Republic, um, can that be used for ill intent later down the line of an excuse almost yeah. for certain actions that are done? And mm-hmm. uh, and then to, and I was thinking about this throughout the book. And then when we do see at the end, Marcion use it as we are all the Nile, I was like, wow, yes, yes, we can. <laughs> and I wouldn't be surprised if that comes to play later down the line, especially knowing that Marquion has someone on the inside with the Republic. I can't remember who it is specifically, but within Chancellor So's like inner circle, right? Am I remembering that correctly? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's kind of chilling how he takes that phrase from her and uses it for his own gains. And right now we have someone like Chancellor So that we believe in and she has all of these plans, but I think with anything with history and even like looking back on JFK and like Camelot, like a lot of that is a facade too, you know, like that's kind of the whole point too, is that Camelot fell and it was also not real. Um, It was what everyone, it was what people like the Kennedys wanted you to believe and also what you wanted to believe too, (laughs) Mm -hmm. that, that things are better, that these are the people that are going to fix all the problems, whoever it is in power. Like, they're so good hearted, like they're going to be the ones and that's just never going to happen because everyone is human. And I think 
you we can see a lot of this in Chancellor So too. And we mentioned at the top of the show of like, you know, she's talking about like basically like outreach programs to the outer rim. And again, that conversation of, well, why is that the outer rim? Why can't that be the place of burgeoning technology and culture? Why is that considered um, the backwaters primitive, which is how we see a lot of like colonization conversations happening throughout history in our own world. And I think that I don't think that that was super well addressed in this book. Um, I hope it is in the future of perhaps these outer rim planets kind of maybe pushing back against that a little bit. I don't know if that will happen because I don't know if we necessarily see that later down the line in Star Wars stories. It's not like these outer rim planets, like there's a, I guess, a capital of the outer rim, the same way that Coruscant is always kind of treated as the center of the galaxy. But to see this really, this language really being heavily used by Chancellor So, it's like, yeah, it's good that she wants there to be, you know, reliable hyperspace lanes between Coruscant and Dantooine. But also, how is she thinking about Dantooine and their people as they need the Republic's help? Is that the best way to think about it? It has a lot of real world parallels. So I hope that it's not something that is just kind of like, oh, Chancellor So is doing all these great things. And that like that's what we talk a lot about on here. That's what we talk a lot about on Sky Talkers, right? Of both these things can be true. Like mm-hmm. it's good that like Coruscant has better hyperspace travel right now. It's good to take that to a place like Dantooine that doesn't necessarily have that quite yet. Um, but then the other side of it is also true of why does someone like Chancellor So just get to come in and be like, look, I'm giving you this great transportation route. Aren't you the Republic? Say, repeat after me. We are all the Republic. Here's this hyperspace lane. You know, like both of those things can still be true. And I wonder how that will come into play in the High Republic era. Me too. I think just to go back on one of your points that you were talking about, about the the change from, okay, so everyone says we are all the Republic, right? And then you hear we are all the Nile. If you can contrast those two statements and you think about the Nile, that word comes from the word like nihilistic and um, being a nihilist, which means you think life is meaningless. So if you think about the phrase, we are all the Republic, you think we all have meaning. Everything we do has meaning because we're all going to be in service of a greater world, right? Or a greater universe, the same greater goal. galaxy. Yes, we all have the same goal. But when the Nile say it, they say we are all the Nile. Everything becomes meaningless. We are all the Nile we are not working towards the same goal, but our goal is the most important. And our goal, I don't know, it's just, it's its way more dire. And it's interesting when you put those two things in conversation, especially when you think about like, what are the Niles goals? I think one of my favorite parts was honestly that, that use of the phrase and seeing mm-hmm. it at the end with Markion using it too, knowing his relationship to the Republic and yeah, we can all use that good feeling of backing, being behind something like we are all the Republic. And we can also you can use it to the same ends of we are all the Nile. Mm-hmm. And that that's like the Nile, I think, represents. Yeah, it's weird because like like you were saying, like nihilism, obviously, and that nothingness. But the Nile are such chaos and mm-hmm. That's like how they describe them. It's, I think it's very interesting how they describe themselves with both Nile, meaningless, meaningless existence with nihilism, but then also obviously tempests, storms, clouds, strikes. That's chaos. Mm-hmm. And there is kind of chaos in nothingness and in the unknown, I think. 
as well. I would say chaos is meaningless. Like the concept of chaos, like you can't define it. That's what makes it chaos, you know, and therefore it can be seen as nihilistic. It can be seen as meaningless. It can be seen as um, something that just doesn't make sense. It's just happened. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It's just a lot to unpack and there's a lot to think about there. And I'm really hopeful that they continue to explore these things because you're right in that that was like such an interesting point. And I want these concepts to be fully challenged in the next couple of phases of the High Republic because here we are laying the ground for like things that could potentially be problematic. And I want that to be pushed forward, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Just I'll add in real quick. Um, the other thing I thought a lot about too was Frank FDR and all of his New Deal initiatives mm-hmm. uh, during his tenure as president, um, administration, public works, uh, all of that, providing jobs to people and stuff. Uh, thinking of everything Chancellor So was trying to push forward um, made me think a lot about that too. I don't know a ton about the New Deal and everything <laughs> that happened under it. I feel like it was one chapter in history, and then. Blew right past it, like a lot of stuff in the in the twentieth century. Um, but I think the New Deal is one of those things that did good things, like providing people jobs. Um, Public Works Administration was also like monuments and stuff like that as well, um, and also uh, like civil service um, and like engineers and stuff, and all of that is really good. But there's also a lot of harm that came out to, particularly a lot of minorities and like indigenous populations through some of these efforts as well. So again, that like they're both, all things are true and not all things are good or bad um, or (laughs) not. Yeah. Not completely good and bad. So I just wanted to slide that in that I also thought about what was happening at at that time period too. Yeah. I mean, I think that all these are interesting parallels that we can, that they could potentially explore. And to your earlier point, I think you said something about how, whether or not we are actually in the high Republic because things are being created and things are being made. Like the great works are just beginning, right? You said that earlier and you were questioning about whether or not like we, the high Republic is to come or if we're now in just like the developmental phase. And I would say that because those things are happening, like the great works, the launch of the starlight beacon, that yes, we are in, in, the high republic because the the production and new ideas of things is what makes the period great yeah i think you're right i think we can call it the high republic i don't know if they would call it the high republic exactly and yeah I think, just yeah. like we don't we don't call world war one like they wouldn't it's the same thing yeah yeah great war well and then yeah, exactly. second great war yeah <laughs> Isn't that the worst when you're reading stuff about World War One and they're like, this is the Great War, but they have no idea that there'll be another it is. one. It's, it's, it is. It's awful. It's chilling. And that's the thing, too, with something like this is we all know that whatever, you know, if Elzar's vision at the end is not actually about Revenge of the Sith, that that is not the only thing that is coming for them. Yeah. Like, we know that the High Republic doesn't stand in the time of the prequels. It looks different. People's attitudes are different. There's a threat of the Sith. And what does that breakdown even look like? I, that's that's like the big question for me where it wasn't – and I don't expect it to be answered all in one book. It's just, This is going to be a continued story. But I want that to be pushed because I'm trying to find the most differences between like the Jedi that we know and have known for years versus these Jedi. And I, I want the differences to be clearer, but maybe the point is that the differences aren't that clear. And the Jedi that have lost their way in the prequels – really do think that they're like embodying the Jedi of the old when actually they're not because the 
their their visions are completely clouded. They're not able to see the the forces as, as a as the sea as um, as a, as sounds as music. It's it's all different then, but they do think that they're still like the guardians of yeah. peace and justice in the Republic. But are they? Well, the thing is, it's like the seeds of what brings about the downfall of the Jedi that we eventually really see in the prequels has already like that seed is somewhere here, yeah. like in the higher Republic. What it's something that they're doing here will have that ripple effect down the line for better or for worse, like whatever they think they are or are not doing right uh, right right now in the High Republic. Let's talk a little bit about like actual Athurian myth. (laughs) We actually haven't really talked that much about it on Sky Talkers before. And it's interesting too, because I I would think that we would have since J.J., and Lawrence Kasten actually talked about how drawing upon Athorian myth for The Force Awakens was something that they actively did. Like if you look at Kylo Ren's costume, it even looks like an old knight costume. If you think about the the the, the lightsaber basically becoming Excalibur, all those seeds are all there. So there is like an intrinsical tie-in with Athorian myth in Star Wars. I mean, I think you can even think about like the mentor figure, like Merlin as Obi-Wan Kenobi to Luke Skywalker, you know, it, all these things kind of come together. And George Lucas has referenced it before. And I want to think about if we think about like <laughs> this reference of Camelot, let's talk about like who could be the figures in Athorian myth in the High Republic. The first person that comes to mind, obviously, is Avar Chris, who is like our main Jedi, right? I I, I would say. And it's to me, I'm thinking like, is Avar the embodiment of Arthur? Because, you know, she's so good. She's so ch- she's chosen all these things. Right. And I I just wonder if we're going to see some sort of um, struggle, some sacrifice, some downfall akin to Guinevere and Lancelot and Arthur and everything when it comes to like, what does her fall look like? This is what I was referring to about wanting to talk about this further later. And I just think it's an interesting thing to have in our head to think about like what her character arc is going to look like, just because it could parallel something like this, some some story that we're so familiar with that even if we aren't like, you know, so refreshed on it, we do know about this like mythical love triangle right? <laughs> that, that was like the downfall of a kingdom. And I think that there's so many parallels, like we can think about the council as the round table, or we can even think about the starlight beacon as the round table. And even the ways that the Jedi are drawn in the concept art. There's like a lot of like nobility, a lot of chivalric aspects to a lot of the art. So I do think it's there. I do think it's part of the conversation that was like on this mythical whiteboard that we hear about at the, at Skywalker (laughs) ranch when they had this weekend retreat. And I just want to know. Yeah. The dinosaurs. Oh my God. I want to know which character they think embodies Arthur. For me, I'm like, Oh, it's Avar. Even Avar kind of even sounds like Arthur, right? Like both a names, like it just makes sense to me, but how messy is it going to get? Because we all know that Arthurian myths can get pretty messy. And I was listening to a podcast recently. I love Imaginary Worlds. It's a great podcast. I highly recommend it to listeners of this show. I've mentioned it before. And they recently had an episode about Kim, uh, I wanted, almost said Camelotian myths. Oh my God, like Cambellian, but uh, <laughs> Arthurian myths. And they mentioned something that was I thought was an interesting parallel. They said that Athorian myths actually were like the first shared universe because all these different people were writing these stories and carry in passing down these stories. And the authorship is different. It goes from uh, medieval works down into like romanticism and everything. So to me, it's interesting because we can think about 
even the High Republic as a shared universe with all these different authors creating myths and stories and everything. And that's another parallel that I was just thinking about. And I thought it was really cool to think about the Arthurian universe, <laughs> if you will, as the first... The, uh, the Arthurverse? Arthurverse? Yeah, the, our, yeah, exactly. As the first shared universe. I mean, we all talk about that kind of concept all day long lately. And we can look way back into medieval literature for the origins of it. Yeah, that's really cool. I didn't know that, actually. I I don't know a ton about Camelot aside from the TV show Merlin. Um, <laughs> and like it's the basic like in your brain, like, you know, about Merlin, you know, yeah. about Excalibur, you know, about. Like, yeah, I know. I know. And the, and the, table, the Holy Grail, all these things. Yeah, I I mean, like, I know the basics, but I don't know a lot. Like, I would probably – it would probably take me a minute to remember be like, Lancelot, that was his name. Like, I've got Guinevere, I've got Arthur and Merlin and Excalibur. I'm like, who's that other guy? <laughs> Lancelot. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I think – I think it – I think you're – I think everything you were talking about, Charlotte, is spot on, especially, like, that shared universe aspect I think is super interesting and, like, how – how closely are they following some of these archetypes with like Arthur and Guinevere and Lancelot is Avar, Avar, our, our, say that three times fast, is (laughs) Avar, our Arthur. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It'd be interesting to see once we do learn more about her because yeah, and you're right. Like Arthur and Camelot, they are mythically, historically, and then even like from the 1960s with the Kennedys put up as this, like, this is it. That's what, that's Mm -hmm. what we're all striving to get back to. And I think perhaps even the Jedi that we meet in the prequel trilogy, they're trying to get back to this type of order as well. But maybe there's knowledge that's also been lost though in the in-between of like how they really fell. And even, like, the disappearance of Excalibur. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if there is going to be something that is Excalibur-like. Um, like, if there's the lightsaber or something like right. that that could come up with that Avar gets. Or or maybe one that she's – something that she's tempted by to get mm. uh, mm-hmm. from the dark side. Because the thing in that – in the vision that um, Elzar sees, too, is talking about everything being tinged in, like, a purple light. Um, something like that. It's purple He's seeing something purple going on in that vision, which is a very specific color choice. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. It's not like the blue lightning colors from the Sith. Totally. It'll be interesting. I I don't know what to think about all that. I I just don't really have any theories, honestly. I don't know. I think that when you think about a Thurian myth, like you think about how great the round table assembly was and everything, but the downfall really came from personal feelings and emotions. Mm -hmm. And everything. So how does that fit into Star Wars? It's pretty clear to me how that fits into Star Wars, especially when we're dealing with a Jedi. And I just want that to be explored. Yeah. And someone like Markeon, who was out for revenge and power. Yeah. All right. Can we talk about the Jedi in this time? Because they're so interesting. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, Charlotte, where are the Jedi right now? What's going on with them? Who are they? The Jedi right now think they're the best. They think they own the Force. And we believe them because they're doing good. They're rewarded for it. And everyone loves them. And (laughs) that's basically it, in my opinion. What about what do you think, Caitlin? Yeah, I think you're spot on. Um, 
this other quote from that panel for the launch of the High Republic from Kevin Scott, I think speaks to it well, too. He said, we meet the Jedi during this time when they've done their job remarkably well as peacekeepers. It's changed the way the Jedi have operated, the way they see the Force and themselves. People are used to seeing them and love them. And I think that there's just this... There's this bravado around the Jedi right now of invincibility and Mm -hmm. this, but there's also like, we see a lot of Jedi die in this book too. And this, um, I think I forget their names, but when one of them dies suddenly and his partner is like immediately stops thinking about it and says, I have work to do. Like they're in the middle of a battle or, or something like that. And just immediately shuts down any kind of emotion about watching their very good friend just perish. Um, Mm -hmm. There's this, there's a lot of bravado I think about the Jedi right now and this just like absolute confidence in the force and their skills and what they're capable of and what they can do. Um, I will say probably one of my favorite sections of this book was the I think I think it's another interlude where we're in the Jedi Council and they're debating about what the Jedi Council is debating about whether or not they should get involved with any kind of uh, further military efforts with the Republic as far as gaining information, um, the flight recorder from the ship that causes the whole great disaster, uh, which I thought was so interesting. I think it's worth reading some of the pieces from that because they talk about history, they talk about precedents, they talk about their foundational beliefs. <laughs> it's all there. I think I, I was like, Caitlin, you can't highlight the whole chapter. <laughs> um, yeah, it's all told from the perspective of the Jedi Jora Mali, who does end up dying later on um, in the book. But everyone on the Jedi Council, they're debating about whether or not um, they're voting, rather, if they should take part in uh, the attack on what will eventually be the final standoff with Kassev, where he'll die, basically. So there are a couple of things that I think were important about the history of the Jedi and kind of how they see themselves right now. I'm just going to rattle through a couple of them. This is uh, chapter... It's the interlude. So in the hardcover edition, it's page 297 to page 301. And these are just a couple of quotes from that uh, little section. The Chancellor of the Republic, Lena So, had asked the Jedi to participate directly in a mission she had authorized for the Republic Defense Coalition to hunt down and either imprison or eradicate a group of Outer Rim Raiders who called themselves the Nile. The Nile must be dealt with. The only question was the role of the Jedi in that action. Jora listened as the various council members presented their arguments. Great emphasis was placed on interpreting the will of the Force, listening for the voice of the Force, taking direction from the Force, and so on. Jora found that a little tiresome, a philosophical vortex. For her, it was very simple. The Jedi were deeply connected to the light side of the Force. Whatever choice any Jedi made was, therefore, the will of the Force. Study and focus allowed the Jedi to become better instruments of that will, certainly in much the way that a well-maintained lightsaber functioned better than one that had fallen into disrepair. But getting caught up in an endless debate about what the Force might want was paralyzing, a waste of time. The Jedi are not a military force. I believe it's that simple. We've been a military force in the past. In fact, our predecessors waged and won the Great Sith War. There is endless precedent in the Chronicles for this sort of thing. 
we're not at war right now, not the farthest. There have been times in our history when the order was reduced to but a handful of members. I think that's really interesting. We find out that Yoda is casually on sabbatical. Um, <laughs> they ask, what is our role in this republic, at, in this republic, at this precise moment? Um, they talk about that a little bit. And then I really liked this piece from Yarrow Poof, of all people, who said, yes, we are guardians of two ideals, are we not? Sometimes, unfortunately, they come into conflict. We must always strive for peace, but also justice. Peace without justice is flawed, hollow at its core. It is the peace provided by tyranny. Um, and then finally, they ask Jorah what she thinks because five people in the council are against getting involved in the conflict and five people think it is the duty of the Jedi to get involved. There are 11 people in the council. And so the vote comes down to Jorah. And she says, you know, I'm not much for words. I prefer to act. In this case, I think the decision is simple enough. It's the same question I ask myself whenever I do anything at all. Does the action I'm about to take bring more light into the galaxy? And she thinks it does. And so they vote to enter into the conflict and align themselves with the Republic for this uh, excursion, <laughs> this uh, attack, basically. And I think that there's so much baked into these couple of pages about the Jedi. I think that Yarl Poofs is the most interesting and the most mm -hmm. concise we've heard. The Jedi really kind of talk about their role. And then I thought that Jorah's quote at the end was super interesting too. Does the action I'm about to take bring more light to the galaxy? And that means that you have this unshakable belief that whatever a Jedi thinks is automatically aligned with the light side, that there is no temptation there. And she even says that like in her philosophical belief that the Jedi always follow the will of the Force. So whatever we do is automatically the will of the Force automatically and i think there's a lot of debate for that <laughs> um, well it's so flawed that entire yeah. concept is is just is so flawed you can't think of yourself i mean these people are human they have force abilities but they're human with emotions and they're not yeah. pillars for the for like puppets vessels if you will for the force like that's not how it works and that's not how an organization like the jedi can operate because people have emotions they have fears they have doubts they have friendships they have loved ones and even though you're supposed to cut yourself off from the jedi uh, what you're supposed to cut yourself off from those things when you're a jedi more often than not um you can't because you're human and you have multiple feelings and like that's the story of star wars you know and i think that that is just uh, like full of hubris to even consider that you are a mouthpiece for the will of the force yeah yeah and Jorah ends up perishing, but a few pages later. Yeah, it is. Um, it is sad, but I just, yeah, this whole kind of debate through this decision, I just found very fascinating. And like, I don't, like the council always seems kind of on the same page or they're very calm in their disagreements <laughs> in the prequel trilogy. And it, it very much feels like it's like, Okay, Yoda and Mace are pro this, so that's what we're going to do. <laughs> we're here to see them having this actual argument about it. And I thought it was really interesting knowing that, especially knowing what will come in the future of them saying there have been times in our history when the order was reduced to but a handful of members. And that time is going to come again, Yarl Poof. <laughs> 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 I 
And yeah, and talking about, you know, they fought in the Great Sith Wars, they've aligned themselves with the Republic before. And even the the question of what is our role in this Republic at this moment, you know, just alluding to the fact that the the order has has cycled through many different versions of itself and many different politicians. So to what degree do we choose to get involved now? And mm-hmm. The fact that they decide to actually go through with it, I think we all kind of – it's like you're beginning to see this relationship with the Republic um, become more intrinsically tied together, inextricable, I guess would be the better word, which is what we more or less see in the prequel trilogy. Like it doesn't really even seem a debate, especially in the Clone Wars where they're definitely engaged in war and mm-hmm. – they are the face of the Republic. Whereas now in this time period, it's still like the Jedi can kind of pick and choose what they want to do when it comes to the Republic. And but then you think about the Republic, they don't even the Republic doesn't even have a military. They have no kind of defenses. And so I wonder if there'll be a time in the future when the Jedi choose not to participate. There are great losses. And suddenly the Chancellor has to have a military budget. Because they don't know if the Jedi, they're like, the Jedi abandoned us. Now look at what happened. Yeah, but then even that gets complicated in the Clone Wars when the whole Military Creation Act happens with the clones. And the clones are kind of created without the Jedi even noticing. Then they have to kind of take control over that because the Jedi actually created them. And they can't act stupid to that because they don't want that to fall into the wrong hands. And then it's a huge debate and it's a whole thing. And I feel like that we're just kind of seeding that a little bit. I mean, I feel like we're seeing reflections of the same conversation that they're even happening 200 years later. And that to me is quite interesting because that means that the Jedi haven't really evolved that much into answering these questions about what it means to be a peacekeeper and whether the peacekeeper needs to get involved in war. And I think that that's like the overall like confounding question of life, right? Like (laughs) in politics and everything is like, how can you maintain order or peace? Uh, It's so it's, it's, a lot, you know? Well, and that's, what, that's what Yerl Poof says, is that we're not exactly. just about peace, we're about justice, too. Right. Hmm. It's just, what I think is is fascinating, I think you brought up a really good point, Charlotte, about how, you know, you're right, like, these are very similar conversations that they end up having at a much different time period, 200 years in the future, and it ultimately leads to their ruin. But it sounds like this ruin has happened before, of Mm. them being reduced to but a handful of members. But also one thing I thought was very fascinating and always things to keep in mind is that we know that Jedi temples are built on top of Sith temples and that there is this, that the dark side is not mentioned once in this book. It's crazy. It's crazy. insane. And talking about like, you had mentioned this too about the Jedi are not evolving if they're having the same kinds of conversations. And of course, like these kind of moral complexities are, there's never going to be an answer to them, right? Especially like peace and justice and like peace without justice is is tyranny and and all that kind of stuff. Like those are never going to have concrete answers. Like, of course, they're still having that conversation 200 years in the future. But thinking about the fact that the dark side isn't even like a piece of the equation in what they're doing right now, like, even just kind of even when like the Jedi throughout this book kind of acknowledge um, feeling sad or scared, like especially Bell, how he's learning how to free fall and save himself, um, <laughs> talking about like his fears of being smushed like a pancake. <laughs> None of that is ever kind of frowned upon. There is an interesting conversation between two of the Jedi about attachment and it kind of being like a taunting conversation, like a joking 
but also kind of like a thorn in your side. It's an interesting tone to it. But um, remembering in Dooku Jedi Lost, (laughs) the original Jedi having that mantra, right, of walk into the light, embrace the dark, the whole thing. These Mm -hmm. Jedi aren't doing that. They're very much not doing that. So we're already very far removed from what the original Jedi looked like. And we don't know a lot about those, if those were even Jedi, right? Like if that's even what they call themselves. But we don't know, we still don't know a lot about if those Jedi were even, quote unquote, the best, the ideal version of the Jedi, right? Um, But these ones, they seem more ideal than what we get in the prequel trilogy. These Jedi seem a little bit more on top of things than the Jedi in the prequel trilogy, but they don't seem like the Jedi from Dooku Jedi Lost of the walk into the light, embrace the dark, the whole that whole mantra. And then again, we still have this whole dark side underneath the Jedi Temple just waiting to erupt. And that simmering, I think, is kind of always there, especially when we're leading up to the events of Revenge of the Sith. And I think, I think it just still kind of blows my mind that the dark side, none of the Jedi are like, is this the dark side? <laughs> <laughs> My brain is kind of going a mile a minute right now thinking about the possibilities of where this will end um, and what we're heading to because I'm still trying to figure out like, and this is obviously not a question we can answer today or anytime soon, like relatively soon, but I'm wondering what the Republic will have to say when it when it's concluded. And maybe it's here. Maybe it's this understanding, this confrontation of the dark side, not just this entity like the Sith, right? Not just we fought in a Sith war and we won. Ha ha. We won. We own the force. The force is ours. Because that's kind of how the Jedi think about it. But what happens when they're presented with this idea, this concept of the dark side within them and this concept of fear and this concept concept of of passion and what will happen when some of them retreat to that because they don't know any better because now there's a division, there's a lack of balance, there's something that's happening in between it. I don't know. I'm like, I'm visualizing like, are the Jedi going to turn against each other? Will 50% go towards the dark? Will 50% go to the light? And they have to find some sort of balance in between. Like that kind of sounds fun to me, like an interesting thing to explore. Um, and then how does that break down the High Republic? Uh, because now they're like hand in hand, intrinsically in t- tied together. And I don't know. That's just... yeah. Um, random ideas but it's fascinating that it's not mentioned you know yeah what i think is crazy about the jedi is that there have never been different sects of jedi who have different like like a church like christianity like different denominations of jedi right it's just like force users not necessarily like types of jedi yeah but even like within the jedi there aren't like different factions they're all under this umbrella of jedi and it would be cool to see that yeah It'd be very cool to see that. We kind of already touched on the Jedi seeing the Force in different ways and having and and Bear's mentioning to the Vectors, their ships, which don't really have any kind of technology in them. They have some, obviously, but the Vectors are mainly run by the Force and mm-hmm. the Jedi's connection to the Force and how intrinsically linked it is, which is kind of crazy. And I'm going to bring it up again because I feel like it's an interesting point, but that uh, in the Clone Wars with Ahsoka in the final arc with Ahsoka leaves, how they make a point uh, about the droid used in the murder investigation. And I brought it up, the little bio of this droid. 
um, that the Jedi use in the murder investigation in the Clone Wars. And the droid is the Russo ISC. And it says Jedi investigators relied on their intuition and connection to the Force to solve most mysteries. But during the waning days of the Republic, this proved alarmingly difficult as the pall of the dark side began to cloud their perceptions. Increasingly, they turned to technological resources available in the Jedi Temple. This droid was one of the many analysis droids employed by the Jedi Temple on Coruscant. I think Avar Chris would be very disappointed (laughs) if he knew that. And... This is the Jedi that I think we all kind of imagine of just this unbelievable connection to the Force to the point where they can run the ships as they're flying them through the Force. And that is the stark opposite of what is happening in the prequel trilogy and especially by the time we get to Revenge of the Sith. Something I wanted to bring up was a thought that I had. I don't really know what to think about it. I just want to put it out there. Okay. Okay. I want to know if there's a connection between the clouds in the Nile and the Cloud Riders in Solo, aka Emphis Nest, and her whole crew. Because they're marauders. The Nile are marauders. And she's descended of a line of people in the Cloud Riders. And I just I don't know. I just think it's 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 an interesting wordplay. <laughs> and when I think about the pyramid that is the Nile, I envision that pyramid toppling down in the yeah. end somehow. Yeah. And separating and going off on their own and doing what they want, not to appease the rule of three. We haven't even really talked about the rule of three, but I don't know if there's that much to even say about it besides the fact that I think it's an interesting wordplay when we're so used to the the rule of two. And now even coming before, we have the rule of three not even aligned with the Sith at all and this whole concept of sharing and everything is shared and what happens when the cloud riders or the clouds or the storm or the strikes or you know something like that like they are they have enough of it and they rebel and everything breaks down or Marcion's plan doesn't work or it does work and that means the dissolving of everything that is denial I'm just not sure and I just want to put a pin in this concept of the fact that we have something called the clouds that are marauders that are pirates and then in solo we also have the cloud riders who are marauders who are pirates who yes are working for good but they're also pirates and we know that Enfys is a descendant of this group so i don't know i just don't know and they also have a, a really cool slogan too that's on Enfys's helmet in solo too so i'm just like this is a cool organization and could it potentially be descendant from the nile yeah, I think that I when you brought this up, I was like, whoo, that's very <laughs> cool. So I think it's worth, like you said, putting a pin in it and seeing what happens down the line. Because, yeah, especially even the Niles uh, m- motto of we ride the storm, ride the storm, we are the storm, cloud riders. Um, it all it all seems connected. <laughs> so I, I, I want I, my brain wants to connect it. Uh, so per- perhaps the tempests and the Nile at large all kind of fracture and everyone kind of goes off and perhaps like a, a, a sect of clouds within one of the tempests uh, decide to break off and do their own thing. And they are like, we're never going to like, we're not going to have the same hierarchy as the tempest. Like we are all clouds <laughs> and we are all right. equal. Yeah. And I just think it's it's it would be interesting because even on the 
Star Wars databank, they are really referred to as like super mysterious, the mysterious background of the cloud riders, the mass marauders. Like, hello, they're all masked, just like the Nile. I mean, we I know we're so used to masked baddies in Star Wars. It's just the way it goes. But there's a lot of similarities. I don't know. There's something there. I hope. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I definitely hope there's something there. All right. Is there anything else you wanted to say about part two? No, I think we should go into our quotes. Awesome. Listen, big deal. You got another problem. Women always figure out the truth. Always. Welcome to part three, where we're going to be giving each other quotes to analyze. So this is something Caitlin and I do when we are... uh, talking about a book we haven't in a while because we haven't talked about a book in a while but basically um it's this concept of giving each other a quote and then kind of internalizing the quote thinking about it even out of context and how how does it make us feel and also thinking about it in context and um some of them are fun sometimes they're a little deeper so uh i don't know the quotes that caitlin's going to give me to react to and caitlin doesn't know the quotes that i'm going to give her so so uh caitlin do you want to start Yes, I will start. And your first quote, oops, my my Google Doc just moved, is on page 79. Okay. And I'm almost surprised this one uh, didn't come up in our conversation. But the quote is, lightsabers are designed to end conflicts. They were designed to injure no more than necessary and in horrible circumstance where death was the only possible outcome they would kill quickly. No more damage would be done by a lightsaber than its wielder chose. There was no collateral damage with the lightsaber. And then skip down a little bit. The marauders saw them coming. How could they not? Belle thought that was part of the point of a lightsaber too. It was bright. It glowed. It was impossible to ignore. Between the sound and the light, an enemy was given warning. Every possible chance to simplify, to simply not fight. And wasn't that always the best outcome? Ooh, that is, uh, those are two really good quotes, Caitlin. I feel like my first thought is thinking about the lightsabers in the Skywalker saga and how they've changed meaning and are um, weapons in all senses of the word. And I think that in the High Republic, there's a lot more reverence given to the lightsaber. Using the lightsaber, slicing off an arm or something is met with regret and uh, respect. And I think that in this quote, it's just so interesting that they were designed to injure no more than necessary. And in the horrible circumstances where death was the only possible outcome, they would kill quickly. And like when they when you say they would kill quickly, I I am envisioning a sense of compassion even around that. Like you want to be put out of your misery quickly. You don't want your enemies to suffer. So I think that that's interesting. And even now we know from that quote that you read earlier, and it's mentioned in this book, that they fought in a Sith war too. So like, were there Sith lightsabers as well? And like, did the Sith also think about them? Have they recontextualizing, recontextualized how the Jedi think about lightsabers now as like heralded weapons? I think we always think of them as heralded weapons. But again, this goes back to me thinking about like the Arthurian myths and thinking about like uh, Excalibur as this like glorified weapon. And I think the Jedi do the same here. What do you think? Yeah, I really liked um, that this book that Charles wrote this, like kind of thought out about the design of the lightsaber and 
kind of because we I know from like the original trilogy and stuff when they've talked about the lightsaber, obviously a big influence are swords and uh, like Excalibur. There is that that uh, comparison that they've talked about before in regards to the original trilogy. But I'm glad that Charles like kind of gave it time to really talk about it more in the context of the Jedi now and you know, that they're designed to end conflicts. Like you said, there is this moment of pause in what they do, like, and in they harm as much as the wielder chooses. I also think this quote, and we didn't talk about this with the Jedi, but there's also this discussion of, that all these Jedi throughout the book are kind of talking about death and the inevitability of it and of morals. And I think that the lightsaber, especially at the end of this quote where uh, they say, uh, between the sound and the light, an enemy was given warning, every possible chance to simply not fight. And wasn't that always the best outcome? The Jedi all talk about it throughout the book and even like the quotes we read from Jorah of like, they're the best decision maker for when is the when should we be fighting and when should we not? And there is a lot of hubris in that belief. Even uh, when they're rescuing the Blythe family and Loden is talking about the, the clouds that are on that ship and he's like, you know, I'm going to try to save everyone, but the line's been drawn and I know who's higher up on my save list, basically. And that like decision making of like choosing to be the executioner basically, and them getting to decide who lives and dies because of the power of their weapon, I think is a lot of hubris and and part of them not having humility. But that being said, like, there is also this, like, I don't want to fight you. (laughs) I don't want to have to use this. And I think there is that um, inherently, like, good belief in why they have to use the lightsaber and that that is also true, but that it can be used as as like an excuse at the same time too, depending on who is wielding the lightsaber. And so I thought it was a really interesting quote. I really liked how the lightsaber was described. And it did, like you said, it did give a lot more reverence for it. And we even see other characters treating it, especially at the end when Markeon has Loden's lightsaber and the other Tempest runner, Lorna, I think is her name. She She's like she doesn't even want to touch it, and she she's almost like he should he should not be using that. Like Markian should put that down. <laughs> like, that is not his. <laughs> and she's you know like a tempest runner can do whatever she wants. <laughs> but there is this like very deep uh, reverence and fear of what a lightsaber can do. And even they even talk about the lightsabers being like keys for the for the um the vectors, which I thought was really fascinating. But yeah, I really liked kind of some time spent on. The design of the lightsaber. I think this leads into my my quote for you, which is nicely related to this, actually. So it's on page 48. Many Jedi change their hilts regularly, whether due to just whether due to adjustments to fighting techniques, technological innovations, or even on occasion just style, aesthetics, fashion, you could call it. Taomi had no interest in any of that. Her lightsaber, ugly as it was, served as a perfect reflection of the great truth of the Force. No matter what a person was on the outside, inside, everyone was made of light. Yeah, those do go really nicely together. Look at us. I know. <laughs> lightsaber quotes. <laughs> I I liked this. I liked this quote because I I highlighted this too when I was reading. It does 
it's again like another like cool little insight into the Jedi right now because I think with a lot of our characters, especially in like film and TV shows, they're always wearing the same thing. They're always using the same lightsaber. It's <laughs> it's like a huge thing that consistency because you can't afford to have a different outfit for them every episode, right? And so getting to read details like this, especially in a time that seems more economically stable for the Jedi on Coruscant, that you can just switch them out like a phone case <laughs> is is kind of funny. Like, are there lightsaber <laughs> stores, you know? Like, is there a mall inside the Jedi <laughs> temple? Oh, my God. <laughs> just like, where you can, like, who decides what's fashionable or trendy right now as far as lightsaber hilts go, right? Like, so is there, funny. yeah, is there, like, a... <laughs> I'm thinking of like Jedi YouTubers being like, this is my new lightsaber hilt. And like, look, it's got, it's got glitter. (laughs) I would say that it more reflects the trends of like the fashion then versus they, they're setting the trends, (laughs) but agreed. (laughs) No, but someone's got to be telling them that this is trendy too, you know? And then whether it's an influencer who's not a Jedi, it then has to get reflected into a lightsaber. And so there's some middleman there who either has great ties to the Jedi or is a Jedi themselves. <laughs> I, I think it's fun, though. I like how um, Tayami decides not to change their lightsaber and is is okay with it being the same. It made me think, honestly, too, of Kylo's lightsaber, of that like ruggedness, of that brokenness to it, and me how um, that's very intentional that he kept it that way. And it's very intentional with Tammy's lightsaber, too. I think that I'm always thinking about Kylo Ren, but that was definitely for aesthetic reasons and just to appear as the baddest he could possibly appear because, obviously. Um, But I really like the quote, like, no matter what a person was on the outside, inside everyone was made of light. I think that that's a really nice, just a nice saying. It's luminous beings are we in another form. All right. And then my next quote for you is on page 256. And it's kind of just like a fun little quote that we kind of already talked about, too. But uh, it's worth rereading again. (laughs) Okay. Okay. The charhound opened her jaws and a huge gout of yellow flames spat out, enveloping the Nile before he could bring his blaster to beat. A strange hollow scream emanated from the raider's mask and he rolled on the ground trying to put out the fire that had consumed his body. Ember did not stop, just continued torching the Nile until at first he stopped screaming, and then he stopped moving. Good girl, Porter <laughs> said. Very good girl. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, I love this because it's just vicious, and then, you know, it's like, oh, good girl. You did yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, good dog. Like, it's so funny. I love it. It's great. It's also just really badass, and you could tell that Ember is like, did I do a good job? Did I do it? <laughs> I helped, right? Lagging. Yeah, yeah. That's there. There wasn't really anything super deep in this quote. I just I enjoyed it, and I remember when I was reading it again. I think I mentioned this, but I didn't realize that Ember could shoot fire. <laughs> <laughs> I slipped my mind or something, and Ember just continued torching the Nile until he died. <laughs> it feels Oops. very. Yeah, feels very comedic. Like I could see the scene in a movie in my head of Porter just like, whoa. And it's just a, a freeze frame, basically like a long take of, of Ember and then, you know, super cute and 
I think you know what coughs and a little like yeah you know fireball (laughs) what I thought of actually actually um Jack Shack from the Incredibles yeah he's like like manic and then he's a baby again it's that is Ember (laughs) so good yeah yeah okay so are you ready for your next quote yes okay so it's on page 350 okay Oh, I don't have anything highlighted on this page. All right. So it's closer to the bottom. She had to get away to think. It felt like Marcion had trapped her in a box and she could barely understand its shape. It was like the Great Hall. The walls were invisible, but it didn't mean they weren't there. Oh, this is a good one, too. This whole scene is just I know. chef's kiss evil. I know. The whole thing with Lorna. I really liked Lorna. I think out of all the Tempest runners, she was probably my favorite. She she just seemed like she knows what she's doing. And yeah, she named this- her own ship after herself. Like, yeah. what? And then Mark Young <laughs> is like, that would be a big blow to your ego to lose it. <laughs> I was like, wow, burn. (laughs) Sick burn, Markeon. But this in this whole scene, though, she's very much like caught off guard and you can tell she doesn't really know what to do. And she keeps trying to weigh all of her options here. And in the end, the only thing she knows to do is to keep following what Markeon is saying. But you were talking about earlier how cool it was, like the Great Hall, the walls were invisible, and the imagery of that was really cool and very impressive in a scary way. Um, but then saying, but it didn't mean they weren't there. It, it reminds me so much of like, you know, a pretty cage is still a cage. And, mm-hmm. you know, like you, like princesses trapped in towers and castles, like, yes, they have everything at their disposal, but it's still a cage. And it kind of made me think of that. Like the walls are invisible, but they're still there. And there's like she's out of options except to follow Markion in this instance. And like I said, the whole scene was very chilling. And her realization that there was nowhere else for her to go was very scary, even if I don't like feel empathy for her. I think it really speaks to the illusion of the Nile and how they feel like they're free. They have all the back doors. Their great hall feels like it's floating in midair and it's unpenetrable and they have all this freedom. And there's really, I didn't get a sense when the areas of the Nile, like the, the living spaces and everything were being described, I wasn't like, oh, that sounds like a haunted house. Like, I didn't get that sense at all. I got a sense of like, oh, this is open, airy. This is modern. This is not I, – I, I pictured like hard edges, but I didn't necessarily picture like I, – I think it was open. It's like uh, sci-fi ass. Expansive, yes. Yeah. And I think that that generally lends itself to freedom, right? But at this point, I thought this quote was really interesting because I think it really shows that it's an illusion, that yeah. they're kind of trapped in this pyramid, this this structure that they think everyone's getting their own fair share, and maybe they are, but they're stuck there forever and only trying to as- ascend to the top when really only a couple people can be at the top. And I, I, I found this quote just it's a you know a short little sentence but I thought it was a really good like reminder of that that like you can think like oh the Nile like maybe they do have a going on maybe they're you know they're really cool like their structure seems kind of foolproof like we'll see how it goes but you know how it's not you know it's not 
because of what's happening in the scene, what happens at the end and everything. I know how those Facebook pyramid schemes end up. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And it's something that they talk about too throughout the book as well with Marquion and and Cassiv and Lorna and the other Tempest runner of this idea of freedom and if they really have it or not. And I think all the Tempest runners kind of realize, oh, I don't have it yeah exactly especially Cassif at the end when he's like has Markion given us a new path yet has he given us a new path yet and uh they've realized that they don't actually have the freedom that they think they do right and he thought that he was like doing his own thing he's gonna take over he's gonna excel he's gonna win and in the very end he doesn't at all so he has no freedom he has no freedom yeah yeah none whatsoever yeah I think I yeah, the, the Great Hall and the whole idea of the Nile, I just envision like always in darkness. All mm-hmm. like they're never at a planet. They're always just waiting in space somewhere in the dark. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's it's very fitting for that group. Well, those are our quotes. Yeah, we you know, honestly guys, we had more, but we ended up reading them in earlier. <laughs> parts of the discussion so if this feels a little shorter that's why we already talked about the other ones we are going to read (laughs) all right well is there anything else that we forgot to talk about or you want to mention before we sign off i don't think so i I mean i really enjoyed this book and i i know it's a long one so i feel like we didn't touch on everything obviously we never can but I'm really excited to start this journey into the High Republic and we'll be covering other books and other pieces as well. And I'm just really excited for it all. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed our first book review in quite some time. <laughs> we, <laughs> we enjoyed doing it and reading Light of the Jedi. And I hope you guys are enjoying the High Republic era too, if you are joining in on it. And we're going to be covering more installments of it in the future. So check back in here for all your High Republic news. (laughs) And I hope you guys are having a great January so far and a great 2021. We will be back soon with another episode. Until then, you can find us on Twitter. Mostly our handle is at SkytalkersPod or our personal handles. Charlotte's is at Crarity and mine is at Caitlin Plusher. We also have our website, SkyTalkers.com. You can email us hello at SkyTalkers.com or Caitlin at SkyTalkers.com or Charlotte at SkyTalkers.com. Our brand new like vanity email addresses. I just like saying them. (laughs) But uh, you can find us at all those places uh, and whatever your social media of choice is. And if you haven't left us a review on iTunes yet, we would really appreciate it if you took a couple seconds to do that. It helps other people find our show and join in on the conversation. And if you're interested in other ways to support us, you can head on over to our Patreon and check out our reward tiers and ways to get involved in the Skytalkers community and on our Discord all over on Patreon. And I want to say a huge thank you to these patrons, Britt, Brittany, Alex, Emily, Anders, Aaron, Levi, Patricia, Sophie, Nath, Logan, Colin, Molly, Nanami, Catherine, Ashley, and Rad. Thank you so much for supporting us. Your support means the world. Yes. Thank you guys so much. And until next time, may the force be with you. May the force be with you.